0: I want to welcome you to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. Before we begin our worship time this morning, Scripture says that we should be in fellowship, that part of uh, the filling of the Spirit is worshiping the Lord through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as well as other consequences laid out in Ephesians 5:19 and following. So let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to begin And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this uh, beautiful day that You have given us. We thank You for the fact that Your grace has supplied all of our needs. And especially that You have provided a perfect salvation for us that is based not on who we are, what we do, but is based on who You are and what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Now, Father, as we gather together to worship you and to praise you for your grace and all that you have done for us, we pray that all that we do will honor and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning our scripture reading is from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is a hymn of praise to the value, the glory of God's Word. We're in the section beginning in Psalm 119, verse 113. Psalm 119, verse 113. And this section extols the value of God's Word as our source of stability, protection uh, against our enemies, and it is the basis for giving us strength and hope in times of adversity. Psalm one hundred and nineteen, beginning in verse one hundred thirteen. I hate the double minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evil doers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Hold me up and I shall be safe, and I shall observe your statutes continually you reject all those who stray from your statutes for their deceit is falsehood you put away all the wicked of the earth like dross therefore I love your testimonies my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments this is the record that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son he who has the son has the life For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's let's ask His guidance and direction on our study. Father, we do thank you for this time that we can study your Word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in Thy light that we see light. And Father, we pray that we would have an attitude of submission to the authority of your Word. That as you instruct us and teach us, as we learn about who you are and what you have done for us and what you have, what you expect of us, we pray that we might be uh, teachable, that we might learn your word, and apply it in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We continue in our study of these introductory letters covered in Revelation 2 and 3, seven letters to seven distinct historical congregations that existed on the uh, western Coast, western end of what is now modern Turkey. These were all churches and cities that had been founded in a few cases earlier than, but uh, several of them during the period of the Greek uh, colonization, which had begun as early as the middle part of the second millennium B.C. as Greeks began to move over across the Aegean from Greece. They established various colonies, and so they had a, a rich heritage of a a foundation in Greek culture. When we come to study them, we realize that each of these churches have been planted probably by the Apostle Paul or one of his students. We're told in Acts that he spent two years uh, teaching uh, in uh, Ephesus, and from there he sent out his students throughout all of the Roman province of Asia, which is the western province covering the western end of turkey and as they went they took the gospel to each of these cities these that were studying plus many others and as a result of their communication of the gospel churches and congregations were planted in the midst of an extremely pagan culture now we have to remember what that term pagan means pagan is a technical term that describes the thinking teaching Values of any system of thought that is non biblical. So, Jewish thought would not be pagan because it is based on the Old Testament, but Buddhism, Hinduism, secularism, materialism, atheism, all these things would be all considered pagan. Uh, in, the, in the ancient world, they dealt with a polytheistic culture that was based on either the uh, pantheons of the ancient Anatolians. Those were the people that lived in, in Turkey, what was now modern Turkey, or the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon and various other gods that got imported and assimilated over the centuries. So this is that, that pagan culture. Pagan culture affected all of their values, their norms and standards, how they viewed, viewed reality. And every person on the planet, no matter who you are, where you live, whether you're in a Stone Age culture in Papua New Guinea or whether you're a sophisticated living in Fifth Avenue in New York, everybody has a world view. And it is that view of the world, how they understand and organize all the all the data in the world, everything that they learn and understand from their view of ultimate reality, whether it's God, matter, a tree, or whatever it is, all the way down to how they make decisions and values and what's right and what's wrong and how they relate to people and their views of government, politics, and law. All of that comes within uh, the purview of a worldview. What happens is that as Christians, we have to recognize that when we are operating consistently on a biblical foundation of thought, which we refer to here as divine viewpoint or biblical thinking, that when you're operating on biblical thinking, there is going to be a culture clash with whatever the worldview is around you. Ultimately, all worldviews can be boiled down to two. There is a divine viewpoint which is expressed ...consistently throughout the pages of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And there is a human, what we'll call human viewpoint. And that human viewpoint ultimately sees some element of the universe as eternally existing... ...whether it's the dense matter that existed before the Big Bang... ...or whether it is uh, the, some, uh, some ancient god that uh, was killed and their body was used to create the universe or whatever it might be but all human systems of thought all go back to something in the universe being eternal and so they're very similar the names may change from culture to culture Uh, some may express it in more academic scientific terms some may express it in more uh, primitive terms but it's all the same thing whether you're talking about the cosmogony of the ancient Babylonians or whether you're talking about the sophisticated thought of modern Darwinism—it's all expressing the same thing. It always goes back to this concept that came out of Aristotle. Aristotle didn't invent it; it was already there when he came along, but he systematized it and organized it, called the chain of being, that everything uh, in the universe shares the same basic, uh, same basic essence, the same basic being or existence. But the Bible comes along and says that there's something wrong with that. Because God is distinct from his creation. You have the creator creature distinction. And that God, there is a unique God, the God who is explained in the in the Bible, the God of the Old Testament of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God has created all things so that he is radically and totally distinct from everything in the creation. And that he is the one who defines all values he defines everything within the in the creation so that you can't understand anything in the creation without having an ultimate reference point to God if you take God out of the picture you can't truly explain anything in creation apart from God and so Christianity and Judaism as it's true to the old testament is really built on that foundation well once you start thinking about life and consistently working out all of your views of society and marriage and politics and law based on that foundation you're immediately going to run into a brick wall known as the culture around you and that culture around you which the bible calls the world system is always going to be in hostility to whatever biblical christianity is teaching now we live in an interesting time of transition in the early 21st century in uh, um, the United States of America because we have seen an, uh, a, a country, a nation that was founded over 200 years ago on a solid Judeo-Christian ethic by men, not all of whom were necessarily regenerate believers, but all of whom thought within a theistic world view. And they believed there was a creator-creature distinction. They believed in the depravity of man. And they understood that total power corrupts totally. That's because they had a biblical view of, of man, that man was corrupt. So they created a system of government that had checks and balances so that no one person or no one group could become tot- uh, completely powerful and control everything in society. So there were checks and balances which grew out of that that particular worldview, and this a country was founded firmly upon a a Christian worldview. That doesn't mean everything that they did was right or necessarily biblical, or cons- but it was within that framework. Starting in the late 1700s, by the 1790s, I believe that if we'd waited another ten years, it never would have happened, because there was a culture shift that occurred right there in the 1790s—a radical thought shift that was that was developing in the universities of Europe that began to drip a slow water water torture, Chinese water torture on Western civilization. And that water drip of, of this secular materialistic thought that came out of the universities of Europe in the seventeen nineties began to erode the foundation—it just like that steady water drip, 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 drip—and people saw this change. And this person said that Kant came along and said this, and and then Hegel came along and said that, and Kierkegaard came along and said this, and Darwin came along and had his view of origins, and Marx came along with his views on on economics, and Herbert Spencer came along with his views on uh, society and the evolutionary development. Uh, development of society and John Dewey came along with his uh, ap- applying some of those things to his view on education and so that foundation of theism began to erode drip 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 just one drop at a time and each time it just removed a microscopic particle of the foundation but 200 years later we look around us and we say, what's happened? The foundation is crumbling in places, in places it doesn't even exist anymore. And what we're finding more and more in our culture is we're not only running into people who are um, complacent about Christianity or just neutral to uh, Christian views, but they're downright hostile to Christian views to the point that we live in a culture that where it is Intellectually acceptable. It is considered uh, being well balanced and sophisticated to attack and ridicule biblical Christianity. Now, you can't attack and ridicule anybody else. Far be it from that. But you can attack and make fun of Christians and the core views of Christianity. And we see that in a uh, this movie that was just released a couple of days ago in the, in the book, The Da Vinci Code, because that's what it does. It, it belittles uh, the faith of Christians and says that there has been a lie that has been uh, fraudulently uh Put forth on the world for 2000 years and the Roman Catholic Church, which they, who's always the bad guy, the Roman Catholic Church has uh, killed anybody who wanted, who came close to discovering this secret and they have been closely guarding this secret that Jesus really wasn't God and Jesus escaped and he didn't really die on the cross and he went to went to France and had children and that Mary Magdalene was really a goddess because it's all about the worship of the divine feminine and so this is now being promoted and you know, we look at this and we think okay this is kind of weird and some Christians say well you know that just doesn't float in my boat and that's not something I'm too concerned about Uh, I know what the truth is and that's fine I was listening to a talk show on the radio the other day and some lady called in and said you know my kids are going to church and the youth directors teaching them all about the Da Vinci Code and preparing them how to interact with people who raise questions about it and you know preparing them defending their faith and uh, everything and, and that 's fine and good, but she says all I, I think all we need to know is the Bible, and I know the Bible says that that Jesus is God, and we can we should trust him, and that 's all we need to know and I was just really pleased with the uh, talk show host because he, he he responded with with the correct answer, and that is, but the Bible says that we 're to interact with the culture around us through witnessing, through defending the faith, and so it 's not enough just for you to be sure. It's not enough just for you to know what the answer is and what the Bible is, but we also have to be able, as Peter says, to give an answer for the hope that is in us. That's part of witnessing. It's, it's good if you're a parent and you have children, you need to be teaching those things as part of your child training program in the home so that when they uh, grow up and they confront these ideas at, at school and from teachers and later when they're in college, that you will have given them a foundation so they know the facts because 30 years ago this kind of thing wasn't as prevalent today it wouldn't have it would not have had the popularity that it, and the play that it does today 60 years ago it never would have gotten published we're living in a changing world and the more our culture erodes the more our culture becomes pagan the more hostile the attacks on christianity are going to be and that's the kind of situation we find In these churches in Revelation, they're facing, in some cases, real persecution. If we go back to chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but back in chapter 2, it talks about the church of Smyrna, and there the Lord warns them. This is the only other church besides the church of Philadelphia where there's nothing negative said. The Lord there says... um, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. You see, in a culture that is still primarily based on a Judeo-Christian worldview and is still primarily theistic, as our culture has been up to about 40 years ago, then you're not going to face that hostile opposition, that that you, people are beginning to face now. But I want you to think about your own your own faith, your own convictions, your own uh, explanation of the gospel, how important that is in relation to other things. Those of you who are here, t- here Tuesday night, I talked about the fact that on Monday night I was just out eating dinner by myself and ran into an acquaintance, got invited over to sit at a table, and the other guy that was at the table was a Muslim. And so it didn't take long before we got into it but what really but what opened the what opened the ball was that the Muslim said well you know after he found out i was a pastor well that's good we all just worship the same god see that's an innocuous statement and in you and i can envision situations where you're uh maybe not at the office but maybe it's a group of people from the office who go out to lunch and and all of a sudden, your co-worker is a Muslim, and they make this kind of statement. Well, what are you going to do? What if that person happens to be uh, 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 in authority over you or a boss? How are you going to respond? Are you going to let that just slide? Oh, well, we all believe in the same God? Are you just going to let that slide? Because, you know, if I really challenge him on that, that might affect my, my job evaluation. That might affect my paycheck. You know, it's not my place at work to be a witness for Christ. But you're not at work, see? You're off somewhere else. Or you're with, um, uh, or, or maybe you have your own business, and this is a client that makes that kind of a statement. Or you're a lawyer, or you're a doctor, or whatever it is, and you're with somebody who can be a source of income for you and job security, and they make statements that are clearly contrary to what the Bible says and you have a decision to make as to whether or not you are going to say something and how you're going to say it and the more we live in a non-christian culture that is attacking christianity the more things like this are going to happen and this is what was happening in in the ancient world for the first two hundred to three hundred years after christ died on the cross Christians were living in a hostile environment and they knew in some cases and sometimes that even the possession of any of the New Testament documents meant that if they were caught with them, they would go to jail. Now that's one of the things that you never hear that brought out in uh, any of these shows that you watch. I just watched a show I taped earlier this week on who wrote the New Testament and it had some interesting things in there, but one of the things they failed to bring out was that as they were trying to decide in the early church, as they were going through that process of determining what books were going to be in the canon and what books weren't, one of the issues was that a Roman soldier would be knocking on your door one day. Now, are you going to give your life for the shepherd of Hermas or for the epistle of Barnabas? or for the Didache of the Twelve, or are you going to give your life for Romans? Now, I'll give my life for Romans, but I'm not sure I'm going to give my life for the for the Didache or the Shepherd of Hermas. So you have to decide what's of real value and what isn't. So that was part of the decision-making process, and as they went through the second century, that period from about from 100 to 200 there were various persecutions, a couple of worldwide persecutions, and there were several individual local persecutions where Christians had to make up their mind. But it cost them something to to be a believer and to take a stand. And you can't always pick the time and the place of your battle. Sometimes you can, and you should if you can. But there are times when God picks the time and the place of the battle. And and you have to decide, are you going to be ready to take a stand at that particular point and how you take that stand. And the issues are always the same down through the centuries. and The attack points are always the same related to who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus Christ did, and what the, uh, what the ultimate authority is, which is uh, the Word of God. So this was a problem. And in the church at Philadelphia, the Christians there faced persecution not only from the source of the secular polytheistic Romans but they also faced uh, an aggressive assault from the Jews that were living there as well because the Jews viewed their teaching that Jesus was Messiah as a profound threat so let's look at the just get our little overview here of where we're headed and then we'll talk about some application Revelation 3.7, to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, and last time we did a uh, study on the history background of Philadelphia that it was founded uh, during the time of the Seleucid Empire, and it was d- founded to be sort of a missionary city for Greek culture, that that from this urban base of Philadelphia there would be uh, cultural missionaries that would go out and impact the rural areas around there for uh, the, for Greek Culture, And so this is part of the background because the church at Philadelphia is given an open door and they be, they're known as the missionary church of these group of seven churches because uh, they w- were missions minded. So there's interesting uh, connection there to the angel that is the heavenly court reporter of the church at Philadelphia, right? These things says, and that's how all of these evaluation reports began, and they began listing various attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is holy, he who is true. The evaluation comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This is a map of the area of the province of Asia. We see the stars located where the different, uh, different cities are located, beginning in the lower left with Ephesus. They move in order uh, to the northwest from Smyrna to Pergamum and then uh, to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then we'll get to the last letter, Laodicea. Laodicea is one of the worst. Philadelphia is one of the best. Nothing negative is said about Philadelphia. So these are the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ that are emphasized here. And last time we learned that the beginning of this evaluation report is different from the other evaluation reports. Of the other six, they all begin with some attribute that was uh, described by John back in chapter 1 when he's on the Isle of Patmos and suddenly he hears a sound of a voice like a trumpet and he turns and there is the Lord Jesus Christ uh, standing, clothed in a robe down to his feet, girded about with a, uh, golden band. It, it is a picture of a priest. It, he's pictured in a position of judgment, and his hair is white like snow, and his, his legs are like burnished metal, and it is this picture, uh, uh, of being, almost being on fire. He's just so brilliant, and it's a picture of judgment, and, and, uh, uh, dressed in the garb of a priest so it's a picture of Jesus Christ in his present ministry as a priest a judge and there's various attributes that are listed about the Lord but none of those are referred to here the other six evaluation reports always refer to something or describe something an attribute that is mentioned back in chapter one but not this one that immediately stands out and says that oh wait a minute stop let's not run through this verse too fast Let's just slow down and see what's what's going on here because this is important. Why is he pulling out something new? And what he says here is, first of all, that it's he who is holy. Second, he is the true one. Third, he has the key of David. Then he builds on that and says that he is the one then who opens. No one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So when we look at this first one, he who is holy, that's the Greek word hagios which is always which always describes god this is this is the greek word that it will be repeated several times in uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5 as we see around the throne of God all the angels gathered singing holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty it's it's the same thing that the seraphim are saying or singing to God back in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah sees the throne of God holy, holy, holy it is only God who is holy no creature is holy we have derivative holiness we have imputed righteousness but we are not holy as God is holy. So if you are a Jew and you are reading this and Jesus is said to be holy, that is a claim of deity. This is offensive to a Jew who doesn't believe in uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's a challenge we face today where there's a point of contact here with the church at Philadelphia is we face a world today that is that does not want to believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ. He was just a man, just like any other man. See, he got married, had children. See what's wrong with believing that? See how subtle that is. but but you don't know, see if he he was married and he had children, wouldn't they be deity too? They wouldn't have a sin nature, oh, so he had to be just a man like anybody else. Well, if he's just a man like any other man, then he couldn't die on the cross for anybody else because he would be a sinner. So it, it it completely destroys the foundational message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that there must be a God, man, Messiah to die on the cross for our sins. So the first claim here, he is holy, emphasizes his uniqueness, that he is God, he is the true one. This is the Greek word alethanos indicating that he is the true Messiah. There is definitely a polemic in this opening against what Jews were saying, what the rabbinical Judaism of that day was claiming. They were not claiming that, they were rejecting the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, but this is saying he is the true one. And then the third statement that he has the key of David, as we saw last time, a key opens a door, that it is the Davidic key, is a the mention of David indicates and is a is a as a figure of speech called the metonymy indicating David stands as the king stands for the davidic kingdom promised in the davidic covenant and so the that he has the key of david indicates that he is the one who controls access to the kingdom jesus is the one who decides who gets into the kingdom and who does not get into the kingdom and see in the first century rabbinic Judaism was saying just the opposite saying that the uh, that Jesus was not the Messiah, that the Messiah was not God and that uh, Jesus could not be the one who would give you access to the kingdom so it's a claim of exclusivity and then the fourth statement made relates to what he does with the key he is the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one Opens. This is based on the verse in Isaiah chapter 22 verse 22. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. See the connection. He is the one with the key of David. And then it goes on to say, so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. It is a clear claim that Jesus fits and has fulfilled the prophecies throughout the Old Testament related to the Messiah. So these believers in Philadelphia are faced not only with hostility and persecution from the uh, secular, pagan, polytheistic Romans, but they are also faced with the challenge from the Jews. Now, Christians today are in the same boat. In some countries, in some cultures, they're in much worse situation than we are, but we have gone down that slippery slope and we're gaining greater and greater speed headed towards a cultural uh, self-destruction. The more that the culture around us slips into this cesspool of moral relativism and secularism and atheism, then you and I are going to come into more and more attack. We're going to be in situations more and more frequently where we are uncomfortable and where the only way that we can maintain jobs, maintain friendships, maintain contacts, even stay in schools in some places. And whether you realize it or not, there are many, many universities in this country where if it is known that you are a Bible-believing Christian, you can't get into a graduate program and study biology or paleontology or geology because you might be... Uh, a, a creationist and so they'll find some way not to allow you in I have a friend of mine who is now a pastor and uh, he was actually told I don't know the outcome he did take him take Texas Tech to, uh, uh, to, to court over it but he was actually told that he was not going to be uh, accepted into the medical school or into advanced studies because he was a Christian and believed in creationism and this is happening more and more today. And if you don't believe that we're in a war, a major full-blown war, then you're living in isolation from the culture from the culture around you. And if you are a parent and you have children that are growing up in this, it will be a thousand times more difficult for them as they grow up because it's much worse today than it was for us 30 years ago and the uh, deterioration is taking place at a much more rapid rate. So we see uh, this kind of attack on Christianity again and again, and it's culturally acceptable. Nobody raises any complaint about this. Now, just think about what would happen if the Da Vinci Code were all about Muhammad. Well, we, we know what would happen. We know what would happen. All the, all the Muslims would throw, a, you know, they would throw a temper tantrum. They'd throw what we call in Texas a hissy fit. And when they throw hissy fits, they start blowing things up and killing people and, and marching on everything. And that's exactly what's happened. Just uh, think about what happened when Salman Rushdie wrote the book on the Satanic Verses and Ayatollah Khomeini put out a contract on him to, uh, and, a, and a price on his life. Anybody who kills him, they'll get a big reward. And he went into hiding for about 15 years. And uh, then we think of what happened recently with the publication of the, the Danish cartoons. Now, somebody had... Uh, had put out some cartoons that were disrespectful of Jesus Christ or Christianity, nothing would have happened. That's fine. But because of the way the Muslims reacted to this, you had newspapers, most newspapers in America wouldn't reprint them, even as a news item so people would know what you were talking about. And those that did got blackballed. And they didn't. Why? Because they were intimidated. The, the Muslims might come again. Something might happen to us. We might get become the victim of a terrorist uh, attack. And this is happening more and more. Where where businesses, Fortune 500 companies, uh, schools, educators be, are being intimidated by the fact that these Muslims might get upset. So who cares about them? But let's we, we can ridicule Christians and Jews all, all we want to. Another example occurred uh, yesterday, I lost the email somehow, but, but somebody emailed me about a journal that is a respected journal, a conservative journal that uh, publishes articles written by world-class journalists who, have, who are published in numerous uh, journals, magazines, newspapers around the world, and they had published in a recent recent journal several articles that were critical, negative towards Islam. And so the the people who control the Google search engine, which goes out and searches everything that's out there on the internet, uh, took this this site for that day off of their uh, off their search engine, so that if you Googled anything on Islam, it would never find this particular article. That's just pure uh, politically correct censorship, and that's just the tip of the iceberg today. There, there's more and more of a conflict between Christians and the culture around them and the culture around us is being affected more and more not just Islam but as as our country becomes more and more uh, influenced by all of the religious minorities that are now here you as a believer cannot avoid the conflict and the conflict's not necessarily pleasant and it may result in persecution. And it's very possible that that persecution in your life may take the form of not being able to go into certain careers or losing jobs or not getting uh, uh, you know, the ability to go to graduate school or not get, get, getting a scholarship or any of these other things that uh, you may be looking forward to. We live in a culture that pictures what the Apostle Paul described in Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables." And we live in a world that, see, see, what's going on here, as we've discussed so many times, is in Romans chapter 1, 18 and 19, we're told that the unbeliever hates God. He rejects God. And as a result of that, he has to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, as soon as you take God out of the picture, something else is going to get sucked into that vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. Thought abhors a vacuum. And if you take God out, something else has to take his place. And that's why uh, Paul goes on to say that professing to be wise, they became fools and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Now what happens is once you reject the house of the Bible let's take an analogy of a house you build a house and that house is the structure of biblical thought and once you reject that and say I'm not going to live in that house because I don't like it I don't like the guy who built it I don't like the rules that are involved in living in that house I don't want to uh, have the curfews or any of the other norms and standards that you have to abide by if you live in that house I'm going to go build my own house I'm going to lay my own foundation I'm going to build my own house and that's been going on culturally in in western civilization for the last 200 years But it gets to the point in the construction of the house where you can start moving in and living there. See, up until about the 1960s, where most scholars would say where the shift occurred, up until about the 1960s, what happened is the unbeliever was still obviously living in in the Christian house. He still operated to a large degree on theistic ideas because he had to to get along in a culture that was still predominantly impacted by Judeo-Christian uh, values. But since approximately 1963, when we entered the post-Christian era in America, uh, their, their home got ready to move into. They didn't have all the furniture in it yet. They might not have finished all the drywall, but it was 90% done and they could start living in it. And now what's happening is they're saying, we're not only not going to live in your house, Christian, but if you're even going to dialogue with us, you have to move out of your house and live in our house. And so we're going to tell you what... Ha- actually happened in history we're going to tell you that that jesus was really married and had had kids and and these ideas be enter into the culture and we think of the da vinci code as just something that's happening right now and this book's been out for four years now so 40 million copies those books are going to be around for a long long time that movie isn't just hitting the movie theater today These movies are going to be released on DVDs within six or eight months. There will be another big promotion. They'll come out on DVD VHS. Then you can download them to your iPod, and then you can watch them on pay-per-view and on HBO and Showtime, and then they're going to be on regular Saturday night the movies, Sunday night the movies, afternoon movies. I mean, for the rest of our lives, we're going to be dealing with this. And these kids, you know how it is your kids grow up. How many times do they watch, you know, if you've got kids or grandkids, how many times have they watched Shrek? How many times have they watched some of these other, The Lion King? And how much of the dialogue can they repeat from memory day after day after day? Because they've seen these movies a hundred times. I mean, they've got every line memorized. Now, when you apply that to the influence of something like the Da Vinci Code, they are being brainwashed with pure paganism. And we think that we're going to counter that by having them come to prep school once a week for an hour. I don't think so. Now, you've moved into the false construct of the human viewpoint neighbor's house next door. You see, that's what they want to do. They're going to create a house that's divorced from reality, that's made up out of thin air, that's a totally fraudulent view of reality, and now they want us to live on the basis of their uh, totally fabricated world view. They're, they're, they're living in a psychotic construct of reality and they, they want us to live there too and when we say no we won't sooner or later it, you come into major conflict that's the kind of thing that was going on in Philadelphia now there's three things that generate a reaction and these were the kinds of things that generate a reaction in Philadelphia and a couple of these we talked about last week and I'll review them briefly and then we'll get to the last one There are exclusivity claims. The one thing that really seems to just really tick off unbelievers, and whether they're religious unbelievers like Jews or Muslims, or whether they are secularist unbelievers, is this claim that Jesus is the only way, that you can't get to heaven apart from belief in Jesus Christ. He's the only way. We have the only truth, and that's it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by him, period, over and out. Well, how arrogant you are. Oh, so it's not arrogant to think that that's not true? You know, flip it back on them. Then there's Trinitarian claims, the idea that God is a plurality. Now, that's not going to matter so much to the secular atheist, but it is going to be a major issue if you're talking to a Jew or a Muslim, that God is a plurality because immediately they they categorize that as, as polytheism. And the third... Claim that generates a reaction is that Jesus of Nazareth was fully God. That he is the eternal second person of the, the Trinity. And he has always existed. And he entered into human history for the purpose of dying on the cross for our sins. So, let's look at each one of these. First of all, the claim of exclusivity. Jesus came and spoke to them, to the disciples, and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. See, this isn't restricted to just one statement by Jesus, it permeates the Gospels. He says, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." In John five twenty two. He says, "For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son." In fact, he's claiming he's the ultimate judge of every single human being. Now, either you're telling the truth, or you have an ego that's bigger than that of the Ayatollah Khomeini, Saddam Hussein, and Adolf Hitler, and Joseph Stalin all rolled into one. I mean, you've got to be absolutely nuts to make these kinds of claims. Of course, what, what they'll say is, well, they didn't say that. You know, the, guy, the the disciples just... You know, they got it all wrong. They just made this stuff up. It was all legend. You know, a hundred years later, they wrote this. And you're saying they're going, I've got to answer this. And the one thing that just... Really pushes my buttons is when I'm talking to somebody and they say, Well, that's just your opinion. Now, what's going on in the sin nature of my soul is that you arrogant, stupid idiot, you've read one book and you think you've researched this. I've spent thousands of hours studying this. This is not my opinion. I mean, you may have an opinion that red looks better than blue. But don't reduce, don't minimize, don't diminish the work that I've done and that others have done in the study of history and the Word of God by just saying that's your opinion. I mean, it may be your opinion whether or not George Washington was a good president or whether or not Abraham Lincoln was a good president, but it is not a matter of opinion if they were president. And see, when you look at these issues related to the historicity of the text and how we got the canon and when these epistles were written. This is historically, uh, you, can, you can validate this through history. There is historical evidence that you can go to, and you can't just make up out of whole cloth the idea that uh, this came along later. Now, that's what the liberals said. That's what liberal Protestants said back in the 1800s, but even liberal Protestants today have been forced by the evidence of archaeology and other discoveries that, in fact, some go too far and they date everything before AD 70. I think that's going too far. But, you know, John A.T. Robinson was one of the major liberals back in the 60s and he came out with a study and said, everything in the New Testament's written before AD 70. Wow. So that means it's all written by eyewitnesses. Well, but he's still operating on liberal presuppositions. We have to recognize that it's not opinion, that it may be, you may want to go so far as to say it's opinion or a matter of faith as to whether or not you believe Jesus is God, but you can't say it's opinion that these books were all written by Jews in the first century who were monotheists, and they believed Jesus was God as well as the Father. You can't deny that. Now, if you want to deny that, what my response to that is, okay, now that you're constructing a house that's completely divorced from reality and has, has no foundation in history, I'm not going to move into that house and dialogue with you. Because if we're going to have a conversation that has any meaning whatsoever, it's got to be based on reason and fact and history. And if you want to deny that and create your own reality, fine, but don't expect me to live my life based on your redefinition of reality. John 5.27, Jesus said, He's given me authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. John 14.6, another claim to exclusivity I quoted a minute ago. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, either Jesus is telling the truth and the Bible is telling the truth here or is telling a lie. You can't come along like an, like Muslims do and say, well, Jesus was a good prophet, and make statements like this. Second thing that generates a reaction is Trinitarian claims that God is a plurality and must exist as a plurality. We covered this last time, and just going to give you a couple more verses, and you need to have these marked, underlined in your Bible uh, right in the margin, what they are, so you can find them again. Uh, Exodus 23 says that, that for the Jews, you shall have no other gods before me. An emphasis on singularity, on, on, on one God, monotheism. But that monotheism is a monotheism that includes within it plurality. It's not a Unitarian or singular monotheism. It is a plural, a plurality of persons within the Godhead. When you look at Deuteronomy 6.4, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. Now, is that a singularity or a plurality? Well, the Hebrew word echad means a, a, a plurality that's combined in a unity. The, and the best way to explain that to folks is just say, remember, God said about Adam and Eve, the two shall become one flesh. Same word for one. The Jews finally got around that. It took them a thousand years to come up with a counter. And um, Maimonides, also known as Rambam, Rabbi Moses ben Maimonides, said that, well, that should be read Yahid, not Echad. Yahid is a singularity. So they had to change the text. Isaiah 50, verse 1, you have the Lord speaking. Uh, thus says the Lord, and the Lord, Yahweh who is speaking, says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned. So it indicates a plurality of person there. We covered that last time. You have one person speaking, and that person refers to someone else called the Lord God. Uh, Isaiah 50, uh, verse 5, the same. The Lord God is speaking and says, The Lord God has opened my ear. So if my refers to the Lord God, then who is this other Lord God? indicates a plurality in the person of God. Isaiah 48.12 Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, and also the last. The name I, the phrase I am clearly indicates deity. This title, first and the last, is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. It goes on to say in Isaiah 48. Just look at the second verse, 48.16 Come near to me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret. Who's the I? This is the Lord speaking. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning from the time that it it was I was there and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me in that last phrase we have three persons the Lord who is speaking the Lord God and the Spirit who sent me me, Spirit and Lord God three persons clear indication of plurality in the Godhead Jews don't like it that's why they wanted to stone Jesus is because he claimed to be God. And that's the third issue, the divine claims of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Now, you ought to be able to walk through this in your your thinking in your Bible. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. John 10.30, he said, I and the Father are one. You can't get around that. Either he's telling the truth or he's lying. John 8:58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That use of the phrase I am may not mean a whole lot to you, but to the Jews it was a claim of God because the proper name of God in the Old Testament was Yahweh from the Hebrew verb Hayah meaning to be. And God told Moses, If they ask you who sent me, tell them that I am has sent you. I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. So when Jesus said this, what did they do? What did Jews do? They picked up rocks to stone him. Why? Because they understood he was claiming to be God, and to them that was blasphemy because they had bought into the Pharisees' lie of a singular or Unitarian monotheism. Now, I want to run through these a little fast. We've done this a lot. Think through this. The Old Testament clearly predicted a Messiah that would be God and man. And it starts off with with general prophecies. And as you go through the New Testament, they get more and more specific. And I'm going to give you ten key verses. And you should know those and be able to walk through those because if just those ten come true in the life of one person, you know it's the Messiah. But this is only ten out of a hundred verses that were predictive of details of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So if these all come true, then you know that the person that, that fulfills all these promises is the Messiah. He's not just some guy who came along and claimed to be Messiah. First mention of a gospel called the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15. The last uh, God promises uh, is speaking to the serpent. And he says, "...I will put enmity between you, the serpent." He's speaking to Satan who's indwelling the serpent." and the woman and between your seed and her seed key phrase her seed the savior is going to be human the seed of the woman key phrase between your seed and her seed he's going to be a man the savior has got to be a human being full humanity God can't die for for us then we go a few chapters later, and after the Noahic flood, Noah gives a little prophecy related to his three sons. Now, we all come from from Noah. We all go back to Adam, but we all go back to Adam through Noah, every one of us. We all have an ancestor that got off the boat. Can't get away from it. So we all go back to Ham, Shem, or Japheth. If you're from a Western European ancestry, then you go back to Japheth. And one of the prophecies that Noah gave related to Japheth, may God enlarge or prosper Japheth, and may he that is Japheth and his descendants dwell in the tents of Shem. and may, and may Canaan be his servant, and in 928 worship the God of Shem. Now the God of Shem is the God of the Bible, the Jews descend from Shem. So it is in 927 and28 you have this prophecy related to Shem. So now it goes from Adam, all human race, now it's narrowed down. It's going to be a descendant of Shem, not Japheth or Ham in 9.28. I didn't have that on the slide. Then it gets narrower still. It's going to be a descendant through Abraham. In Genesis chapter... Uh, Twelve, verse three, at the last phrase, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we studied that in our study of Genesis, the promised seed through Abraham. Remember, it's the seed of the woman. Seed of the woman comes down through Japheth, I mean through Shem, and now the seed promised to Abraham. Then one of Abram's great grandchildren is Judah, son of uh, Jacob. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So now it's narrowed down even more. It's going to be a descendant of Judah, a a human being first of all, then through Shem, then Abraham, and now a descendant of Judah. We move on a little step further. We find something else about this promised Messiah in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is speaking, a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, God says, in verse 18, Deuteronomy 18:18, 18, 18, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brethren. Again, he's going to be a Jew. And I will put words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Then we jump ahead a few centuries to the time of David, the great king of Israel. God entered into a personal contractor covenant with David and said that this promised one is going to come through David. So it was a human being, then through Japheth, then through I mean, then through Shem, then through Abraham, uh, then through Judah, and now through David. He shall be. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Now this indicates that not only is he going to be human because he's going to come from David, but he has to be divine because it's going to be, he's going to live forever, and only God lives forever. So here you have the introduction of the fact that it's very subtle, but you have the introduction of deity and humanity. Then it gets a little narrower, Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. What virgin? It has a definite article in the Greek. What virgin? It goes back to the seed of the woman. It is the virgin, not just any It is any woman. It is the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And what? He shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So again, it's human because he's born from a virgin, but he's divine because his name means God is with us. Then you have the next major prophecy, a couple of chapters later, Isaiah 9-7. That he will... Be, or excuse I could put 9-7 in there. I see the computer messed me up. It's Isaiah 9-8. That uh, Isaiah 9-8, that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, what? Mighty God, divine. Then we go to uh, Micah 5-2. But you, Bethlehem, So So it. So the scripture tells it's going to be a human being through Shem, through Abraham, through Judah. It's going to be a prophet like Moses. He's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be called mighty God. And he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It gets really specific, doesn't it? I mean, you just you have this specificity in this in these prophecies. And then Isaiah 53, ten, he will die for our sins. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We have to know these things, folks, because we're in a battle. It's not only a battle for the mind. It's not only a battle in spiritual warfare. But as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a battle for the definition of reality. And we are going to be confronted again and again in our culture with people who don't Not only don't believe what we believe, but they will be hostile to what we believe and they will be demanding that we move over and live in their world. Last prophecy, Psalm 1610. Prophecy of the resurrection. For you will not leave my soul in chill. This is a messianic prophecy. You will not leave my soul in chill. You won't leave the body in the grave. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption for the body to decay in the grave. In close... Let me remind you of 1 Peter three fifteen and 16. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. That's that Greek word apologia for where we get our word apologetics. Yet with gentleness and reverence. See, it's not just making the defense. It is doing it in the right way. It is not, it's not doing it in an offensive way even though you are on the offense. You understand? You don't want to get in their face and nasty. But you want to take a firm stand for the truth. It takes maturity and experience to develop this with gentleness and reverence. The goal is not to be right. That's hard for us to remember. The goal is to present the truth. In gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile you your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. See this is part of our spiritual life it's part of witnessing it is part of, which is part of our our priesthood, all of which part of our responsibilities and obligations as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're living in difficult times and they're not going to get any easier. It's going to get more and more difficult to to live as a believer in a pagan culture. In Rome they faced physical persecution, arrest, and they faced death. That could happen here someday because that's where our culture is headed. We have political correctness. We have more and more laws that are being based on hate speech and other things. Would you Uh, attack those who want to take a firm stand that there's only one truth and as believers this is going to be a point of contention in our jobs at school in the military everywhere and we have to learn the truth so that that guards and protects us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for this time to study your word today for the refreshment of your word, to be reminded that the scriptures clearly teach that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and that he is not only perfect humanity, but he is undiminished deity. And His perfect humanity, he was qualified to go to the cross and die for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, and at that instant you have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.